Father, we lift you high above all the earth. Father, may our praise be a sweet savor to you. May our worship fill the holiness of your chambers. May the word excite you to move in power. May the prayers of your people excite you to answer them. Lord, we thank you for salvation. We thank you for your righteousness. We thank you for your goodness, your mercy, your truth, your beauty. And we exalt you, Lord. For no other reason than it belongs to you. As does power, might, holiness, glory, majesty. They belong to you. And so, Lord, we honor you as such. We pray all these things in the name of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. How y'all doing today? Y'all doing good? Y'all seem a little tired because of the heat in here. It's all right? Y'all, okay, I guess it's not all right then. Amen. But um, I'm Pastor Kurt. Uh, for those that are new or don't, or don't know me, I'm over the... Uh, the student teaching area of Epiphany Fellowship, um, and so I have the honor of sharing the word with you today. If you've been, if you've been trekking with us for some time now, for the last half a year, um, we've been going through our stewardship series, uh, which Pastor Nyren concluded last week and murdered it with just some practical applications of how we steward the resources God has given us, um, but man, that stewardship series was a beast, the Lord was kicking my butt with that thing every week, um, but it was good, though. So um, we're now in that transitional period as we wait for Pastor Mason to come back from vacation. When he comes back, we're going to be chopping up the whole book of Ephesians. Amen. Yeah. Um, and so today, um, today, we're actually going to be taking a, 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 a brief look at Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, a very familiar passage. So if you will, open your Bibles to Ephesians um, chapter 6 with me. Um, now, because we're going through Ephesians more in-depth with Pastor Mason when he gets back, um, this is just going to be a brief, um, a brief overview. Um, well, it's a, I would consider it a brief overview, but it's going to seem like we're going to be here for a while because we've got a lot of information to get through. Um, so trek, trek with me if you can. I'm going to try to make this quick because I don't want us to be up here sweating and, and, and passing out and everything in the heat. Um, but I, I believe the Lord has some good information for us, for us today. And so I didn't really have a title for this message, um, um, just because, I mean, the easiest title I could come up with was spiritual warfare, right? Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 through 19. Um, and I didn't really have a title because I didn't really want to call it anything. Um, but this morning I was like, what the hey? Let's just call it stand firm. Stand firm, right? So let's read, let's read this passage, um, and then I want to do something a little different. I want to start at verse 12. I want to start at verse 12, and then I want to back up to verse 10 and then work our way through. Is that all right with y'all? All right. Let's, um, let's take a look at this passage, starting at verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces, even 
in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the, breast, the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace and in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And so as we, as we dig into um, this passage today, I want to start at verse 12 for a particular reason. Uh, Paul's here, Paul, Paul starts off with finally be strong in the Lord, but then he jumps to verse 12 and he says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers, against this present darkness, and against spiritual even forces in the heavenly places. And so what I want to do first, before we even jump into this passage about putting on the armor of God, before we jump into what it looks like to be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might, I want us to lay out who exactly we're warring against, who exactly this enemy is that Paul is talking about. And so as we begin, we, we have three, I believe the Bible teaches that we have, we, well, we have many enemies, but three um, that are um, highly regarded as enemies against the Christian, right? And those would be the world, the flesh, and the devil, right? Um, so let's start with the flesh. Let's start with the flesh. Paul starts in, in, in verse 12, for we do not wrestle. Now that word wrestle here, um, or struggle, we do not struggle or wrestle with um, the flesh indicates when he says the word wrestle, it literally means hand-to-hand combat. And so the first thing Paul is telling us is that this is a personal war. This is not, it's not the idea of um, being three or four hundred yards away and, and, sh- and ducking behind a tree and coming out and shooting or shooting arrows. Paul is saying this is a personal war where that, that indicates like I'm wrestling with you. How many of y'all like UFC? Some of y'all think it's too crazy, right? If you don't know, UFC is, is mixed martial arts, basically, where, I mean, you can just, you can beat your opponent. To, I, I should probably let Octavius explain it to you, um, but he might be a little too graphic. But um, if UFC is hand-to-hand, like, you, like your opponent would just, like, choke you up and stuff like that and, until you pass out, and they can, like, kick you in the head and elbow you and stuff like that. It's crazy. I don't know why we like it so much, but it's, it is bananas. But that's, that, is, that is what Paul is explaining here. He's saying, he's saying the war that you in is just like UFC. It's hand-to-hand combat where your opponent is trying to demolish you and destroy you to no end. And it's personal. It's personal. And so as we look at the flesh, let, let, let's talk about these three things, the flesh, the world, and the devil. Um, the flesh. The flesh is that evil spiritual capacity that, if, that every single human being has. It's that evil spiritual capacity that every human has that sends him in rebellion towards God, right? How do we know that? Well, one, all men are born in a state of sin, Psalm 51.5. All men are, by nature, children of wrath, Ephesians 2.3. I'm just going to throw these out because if, if we go to every single one of these scriptures, we won't be here all day. Um, so write them down if you can. 
All, all men are born in a state of sin, Ephesians uh, 5, I mean, sorry, Psalms 51.5. By nature, all men are children of wrath, Ephesians 2.3. Man is a totally affected by sin in his intellect, his emotions, and his will, where you can find at Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18, and Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 19. Um, Paul uses this word, the flesh, and many other words for it throughout many of his letters, and some of the titles would include the flesh, Sin in the flesh, our old men, our old man, sorry, sin which dwells in me, the present, the evil present with me, a different law in my members. So, like, when you see these words, it's referring to the same flesh. This is the same flesh that Paul's talking to as he, as he walks through these different words that he uses for flesh, right? So, what does the flesh produce in us? The flesh produces actions of self-gratification that appear both good and bad. And so sometimes we can be fooled and say, well, the flesh only produces bad things. Well, sometimes they appear good. That's why it's called the flesh. That's why we're tempted by the desires of the flesh, because it appears good to us, right? And so the flesh produces in us some things that look good, but aren't that good for us. But they're always self-gratifying, right? If we look at Galatians chapter 5, verse 19 through 21, I'll read it. Um, but you can turn there if you want to. Galatians chapter 5, verse 19 and 21. And, and Paul says this. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. That's a long list of stuff. And Paul didn't even get nowhere near finishing because he said, and things like these, right? And so this, these are some of the things that the flesh produces. Now, if you were to keep your, y'all are still in Ephesians, right? Still Ephesians chapter 6, all right. Uh, now, Paul warns us in, in Ephesians 4.27 not to give place to the devil as it relates to putting off the old man. When he says... When he says not giving a place to the devil, he's talking about Christians who are living under these fleshly impulses, which means believers, because we're still in a state of sin, even though we've been freed from the bondage of sin, we still live under the effects of sin, and therefore we engage ourselves in these acts of the flesh, or everything we just listed in Galatians chapter 5, verse 19 through 21. But Paul here is saying, he's saying, don't stay there. Like, you're a sinner, but it's, it's one thing to sin and repent and move forward, but it's another thing to live like a fleshly Christian, right? Now, I want to quote a, a quote from uh, Mark Bubik um, on this as it regards to Christians who practice fleshly sins. And this is what he says. He says, he gives place, the Christian, literally claim or practical ground to Satan's activity in his life. Giving way willfully to practice sins of the flesh gives occasion for Satan to have his way in a believer's life. And although all legal claim against us was canceled at the cross, a believer's willful indulgence in fleshly sins gives the enemy a place or a claim against us which he will be quick to exploit. Right? And so, like, I don't want to pound us down with, okay, we're, we're in sin, don't live in Like, let's walk through what, like, that the flesh has actually been defeated or the defeat of the flesh. Right? Jump with me to uh, Romans chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. We're going to stay in Ephesians. Uh, we'll, we'll get to Ephesians. I just want to lay out sort of 12 so we can know, like, the, the dynamics of this enemy that we're, that we're up against here. 
So if you look at Romans chapter 6, verse 1 through 11, let's read that real quick uh, so we can understand how exactly the flesh has been um, defeated by Christ, uh, starting at verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin which might be brought to nothing uh, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he, he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. And so practically, what does that look like? One, it, as, we, as, we, as we war against the flesh, um, there's this four things that Paul goes through here. One is recognizing the fact that the defeat uh, of the actual defeat of the sin nature, recognizing that the, sin, the, the flesh has actually been defeated. Two is not just stopping at recognizing that it's been defeated, but reckoning ourselves as dead to sin, but alive to God. I think that's something that we struggle with. Is actually, we, we have to learn how to move past just the theological reality of us being dead to sin and stand in the reality that we've been like freed from the bondage of sin, right? Sometimes we, sometimes we walk as though... Um, as though even though the record of debt has been canceled against us, we sometimes live as though we're still in bondage to sin. Three is refusing to let sin rule us. And four is relinquishing our control of our lives to God and our members to him for righteous living, right? Now let's go to the world. That's the flesh, the dynamics of the flesh, what the flesh is, and how the flesh has been defeated. Let's go to the world. The world involves a philosophy or an organized system to express that philosophy. The philosophy is this. The, the world has a creature-centered philosophy. The world states that um, the creature, not the creator, is at the center, which we find in the account of Genesis at the fall of man, but also in Romans chapter 1. Um, it, it says that at, at the fall, when, when Satan tricked Eve and gave her of the fruit and, and, and Eve gave to her husband, what he was essentially doing was saying, I know, that the, I know that God has a particular way of doing things, but those things are done so that he's made at the center, right? And so what he essentially did was get them to believe that, no, man should be at the center. And so the world has a philosophy of creature-centered. Everything is about you. God caters to you, right? And so, and so not only is there philosophy, um, but there's an organization, um, and this, this organization pictures an ordered system in which Satan is the ruler, right? And we know that because Jesus even refers to him as the ruler of this age, right? And so that's why, that's why when um, Satan came to tempt Jesus um, in Matthew chapter 4, that's why when Satan offered him the rulership of these kingdoms, Jesus didn't rebuke him from the standpoint of him not having rulership. 
He rebuked him and used the word of God to, to preach against what he was being offered. But Satan's claim to give him rulership of those kingdoms was a valid point because he indeed had rulership, right? And so, um, and so in this order system, um, there is an organization of fallen men and angels who are separated from God and his, are his natural enemies, and there's a hierarchy among them, right? Um, now, these are the, dy- the dynamics. The dynamics of the word we'll find in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. For, th- for uh, these are the things of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. These things are not from the Father, but are from the world, right? And so... What, what, what John was essentially saying when he was laying these things out, he was saying, listen, in this creature-centered philosophy of the world, the, the standard is for you to be able to have whatever it is that you think will be most pleasurable to you, right? That's the lust of the flesh, that thing which will satisfy you most, right? And then we have the lust of the eyes, which is after I've been satisfied, or not even after I've been satisfied, but what I want to do is now the lust of the eyes, everything I see that I think is going to satisfy me, because I'm living a creature-centered philosophy where I'm at the center, everything that I see that I think is going to satisfy me, I have the right to obtain. And so we have the lust of the flesh, the, that, those things that we think are desirable. Then we have the lust of the eyes, is the need for possessing those things. And then we have the pride of life, which says, in light of me, uh, wanting to be satisfied by all of these things and allow, uh, in light of me accumulating all these things, now I want everybody to see all that I have and all that I am and big me up and give me what's mine, which is worship, essentially. So this is that creature-centered philosophy we're talking about in, in terms of the world. Be satisfied by anything that you want, get it for yourself, and then have everybody else look at you and applaud Right. And so um, but Jesus in, in John 16, 33, defeated the world, says, take courage, for I have overcome the world. In first John um, chapter five, verse four, he said, he said, this is how you overcome the world by your faith. Um, and so. So Jesus. So so this is what we have here. We have uh, the 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 flesh, which is our uh, our innate nature to rebel against God. Then we have the world, which is um, not just a system of doing things in a creature-centered way, um, but also the order structure by which we are influenced by it, right? And then we have the devil. Uh, in this section of the devil, we're going to include devil and demons, right? Matter of fact, I forgot to, before we started, I forgot to lay out the two extremes here, the, the two extremes of when we talk about spiritual warfare, because um, some of you, uh, some, some people may not agree with sort of where we're going. So there's one extreme. There's one extreme of Christianity which will say that um, practically they will affirm that the devil exists or that demons exist, but, but they live as though there's not a reality to that. So there is a sect of Christianity that, that, that will deny by their life that, angels exe- angel, I mean, that demons and devils exist and that they can be influenced by them, right? And then you have the other sect of Christianity where everything is a demon. Where, I, where if you go to turn the light switch off and you hurt your back, that was a demon. I'm, I'm, I'm being dead serious. I've had people say that to me, that the, the devil tied a knot in their, in their back muscle and wouldn't let them turn the light off. 
And so we have those two extremes, and that's a, that's a reality. We have one sect that says, uh, okay, they don't exist, but then we have the other sect that says, uh, they, everything is about the, the devil. I got pulled over because I was speeding, but the devil did it. That was, the devil was behind it. Like, like I, I, I know it takes me a half hour to get to work, and I only, work up, I only woke up 15 minutes ago, but the devil made me late to work. And so, so today, so today we just, I, what, what I want to do is bring a balance, a balance to this. The reality that, that, that there is a war going on, a personal battle with every believer, yet this enemy, even though through human resources we don't match up against, they are limited in what they can do once we've been accessed, once we have access to the power of Christ, right? So the, the devil, the, the devil desires to be like God. In every way. He wants to rule as God. And he shows, he shows this off by because he has this hierarchy system of demons that are under him and they go out to the ends of the earth. It, it makes him feel as though he is the same as God in both uh, omniscience and uh, omnipresence because he can gather and garner all of this information. Even though he himself is limited and can only be in one place at one time. Yet he makes him think... He makes himself think he's like God by garnishing all of this information without necessarily getting in himself, right? So he wants to be like God in his attributes. He wants to be like God in his power. He wants to be like God in his control. He wants to receive worship like God, right? It's so, so basically, he wants to be like God in every way except in character. And so I just want, I got some bullet points. I just want to work through different ways in which um, the devil and demons sort of work against believers and work against the church, right? So just stay with me here. Everyone has been directly or indirectly affected by demonic influence. Everybody in here. We live in a world saturated with demonic influence. If you don't believe me, we're in North Philadelphia. Go step outside. It's that simple. Their general work involves the rejection of the gospel and opposition to its spread. They are used by Satan to prevent understanding of the gospel. Luke chapter 8, that's the parable of the seeds and the sower, right? 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 3 says that Satan blinds the minds of unbelievers, right? They wage direct warfare with believers. They accuse and slander in several ways. One, Satan slandered God before Eve. That's not really what God said. He didn't mean it like that, right? But also, not just, not just um, Satan slandering God to us, but also slandering us before God, right? Revelations 12.10 calls him the accuser of the brethren, right? They plant doubt about God's truth, his goodness, and his concern for our well-being. They promote rebellion and defection, and division. They tempt to specific sins. They incite persecution. They promote division in the church. They take advantage of unresolved anger that develops into bitterness. They would do anything to lure us away from a pure union and relationship with Jesus Christ. We've got to know that. We've got to know that. And so... Um, as we, as we look at this, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you why this is such a specific, um, like there's such specific warfare when it comes to devil um, and demons. Now, if, we, if you were to look at Ephesians chapter 6, verse, 12, uh, verse 
11, which we're going to get to, it says, it says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now, we're going to get to that, but, but you've got to understand how he schemes and why you're not able by human resources to stand against him. Imagine, imagine if you had, let's just say 5,000 years. Imagine, imagine you had 5,000 years to study every theory of, of mathematics, every theology, every theology of the Bible, every theory of science. If you had 5,000 years, pretty much everyone in this room would be maybe the smartest person in the world by now, given 5,000 years. If you've had 5,000 years to study for a test, like, you better pass. Like, there's no, like, if you, I don't even want to go there. Oh, Lord, Jesus. If you've had that much time, like, you, you better believe that you'll probably be the best at what you're studying. This is the enemy that we're up, up against. Satan has had millenniums to study the ways of man, to study the weaknesses of man. And, to, and, and he's in a position where he has so much information, he can tailor make uh, uh, he can tailor make a war designed just for you, just for you. This is the enemy that we're up against. Be, like, believe it. He's had, he's had since before the time that Jesus was incarnate in the flesh to, to scheme and develop strategies for the fall of man. This is what we're up against, right? Yet at the same time, Colossians chapter 2 verse 15 says what? He says, it says that, that, what it basically says, I'm paraphrasing, so I'm, I'm not misquoting the text, but I'm paraphrasing. Uh, Colossians 2.15 basically says, when Jesus got up from the grave, he, he basically put Satan in line and all of his, all of his de demonic, you know, pals and, and took them on a victory parade. It, the actual word says that he put them to open shame. Right. But that open shame was not them just not them just feeling defeated while they're by themselves. That open shame was him putting them like taking them in a parade and parading them around in victory. Like they had just lost and yet he's like they're the soul like they are following right behind him in a victory parade. Right. All right. So we have it now. We have the, the flesh, the world and the devil. Right? So this is the enemy we're fighting. We have our own innate desire to rebel against God, the flesh. Uh, we have the system and organization of the world that says that we live in a creature-centered world where everything should be centered around us. Um, and then we have the devil who has influenced us from the, from the beginning of time um, to rebel against God and defect and causes divisions among the church. And his, his main priority in life is to cause division between God and man and between man and man, right? And so this is the enemy we're fighting. So let's look at verse, um, let's look at verse, at verse 10 now. So that was verse 12. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. It's a personal hand-to-hand uh, -hand battle, but we wrestle against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, present darkness, spiritual force, uh, forces of evil in the heavenly places, which can be summed up as the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now let's look at verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength and in the strength of his might. Now Paul uses the word finally here, which means to come to the last point, or I'm about to summarize my paragraph. Or summarize my letter. Now, in order to understand why Paul says finally, we have to know exactly what, we, what he was saying in the beginning of the book, right? Because um, I think this pertains heavily to why he begins talking about spiritual warfare 
in, in chapter 6. So what does Paul say? What is Paul calling the Ephesians to throughout the whole of the book before he gets to chapter 6 and begins going off on spiritual warfare? Chapter one through, chapters 1 through 3, Paul is calling them to the reality that through the work of Jesus Christ, God has made peace with man, Right? Don't get, that, don't get that confused with man making peace with God. Man can't make peace with God. He's calling them to the reality that God has made peace with man. And through, that, and through the cross, Jesus has torn down the walls of hostility between Jew and Greek, and, now is, and there is now peace through him, right? Chapter 4, all who believe are called to one unified body in Christ. Chapter 5, relationally, God has called husbands to wives in unity and in peace. That's why he says, wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives, right? Chapter 6, the first uh, nine verses, he says, he relationally calls children to obedience to their parents, and he calls slaves to submit to their masters, and masters to, not, uh, to, to do well to their servants and not show partiality because they both have the same master who is in heaven, right? And so if we look at, if we look at just a basic outline of the, the first... Uh, uh, six book, six chapters of Ephesians, we find out that Paul is calling them to both unity and peace with God and unity and peace to one another, both practically in the church and relationally, right? So we have that down. The first five chapters are about the peace and unity of God's people between them and God and them and one another, right? So now he gets to uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, and he says, finally... Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Now, you have to understand the reason that Paul gets to this point and says, finally, be strong in the Lord is because he knows he's about to explain the spiritual battle that they're in. Now, the reason for the spiritual battle is the, is the reality that we talked about when we talked about the primary concern for demons and the devil and the flesh and the world, which is what? To divide. To divide God from his people and to divide the people of God from each other. That's the whole point of, of Paul laying out this whole thing about spiritual warfare. It's about what? He's saying, in light of everything I've called you to, wives being subject to your husbands, husbands loving your wives, the church growing up as one body into Christ who is the head. He's saying, I'm, I've told you all of this, and in light of everything I've told you, the reason you probably won't be able to do it is because you're at war. So he's saying, be careful. So finally, in light of everything I've told you, be strong in the Lord. And in the strength of his might. Why? Because we've already established the reality that you can't stand up against the devil by yourself. And so he says, be strong in the Lord. Basically what he's saying is, he says, be made strong in the Lord. Be strengthened by his might. Right? So this is a reality that, like, you can't, like, there are not enough human resources like, to aid you in this war. This ain't a one-man war like Rambo, where he, where he straps 47 guns to his ankle and, and just comes out guns blazing. Like, nothing you have to offer is going like, to pit you in an equal battle with this foe. And so that's why he's calling us to rely heavily on the Lord and in the power of his might, right? So Paul gives two commands. He says, he says in verse 10, he says, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. And then the second command he gives, verse 11, is put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Um, so let's look at verse, let's, let's jump down to verse 14. Because I want us to have enough time. Um, let's jump down to verse 
uh, 14. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the, breastplate, the breastplate of righteousness. Breastplate of righteousness. Did I say that right? Having fastened the belt of truth and putting on the breastplate of righteousness. Now understand at this time when Paul's writing this letter to the Ephesians, Paul is in prison right now. He's in a Roman prison awaiting, for, awaiting his time for trial when he can come before the governing authorities. And so you can imagine, Paul, as he's writing this letter and he's about to dive into this, this spiritual warfare and he's, he's probably like, like wrecking his brain, like, like how do I describe this to them in a way that they can understand? Like how in the world am I going to try to prepare them for this invisible war, right? And, and, and I can just imagine, Paul, I can imagine, Paul, sitting there shackled to a Roman guard and just looking over and the light bulb going off in his head. And he begins to see this Roman guard laced with all of this battle gear, ready for, ready for war, ready to go to battle. And, and it's like, aha, like I'm looking at this Roman soldier and I have established now how I can, how I can um, give visible armor for an invisible war to the church, right? And he starts with the belt of truth. Right now, now as we think about this belt, I'm going to explain what the use was, um, what 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 the for this armor, what the use, what the soldier uh, in the Roman army was, what that use was for for them, like how it how they utilized it in war, and then and and connect that to what Paul is saying in light of um, putting on this armor for this invisible war, right? And so when we think about a soldier's belt, you know, when a soldier tightened his belt. He was ready for combat. And, tighten up, and tightening up his belt, he drew up his tunic and cinched it so that it could not impede him as he charged into battle. It's the same idea in Job where uh, Job is questioning the Lord like, yo, where are you, Lord? How come this? How come that? And what does God tell Job? He says, he says ready yourself for battle. He says, gird your loins which is basically like the belt for them hooked everything together. So they pulled their tunic up and they kept their sword in place. Otherwise, if they ran into battle, everything down here is all loose and stuff and you can't run and maneuver like that. It's impossible. And so the only way for the, the, only way for the soldier to go in battle without tripping over all of, his, uh, all of his clothing and all of his weaponry was to tighten up his belt. Right. So how does that how does that relate to this? The truth, like how does truth do that for the believer? Right. Well, some some commentators believe that when Paul's talking about truth here, he's talking about the eternal biblical truth revealed in Scripture, the objective truth about God, ourselves, history and the future. Jesus said in John eight thirty four, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Right. And so I agree with them wholeheartedly. Yes, this is the truth about God, the truth about ourselves, the objective, eternal word of God. That it's that truth. But I think it also goes further than that. Right. It's not only about knowing truth, but it's also about truthful living. Right. Truth that extends to your character. Right. But but that's that's hard for us. That's that's hard for us. Why? Because we're, we're all liars by nature. We're all liars by nature. Everyone in this room struggles with lying. If not outwardly, then you struggle with it inwardly, right? The, the minute you sin, like when I, say, when I say outwardly, some of us have a, some of us struggle with lying to one another. That's why Paul says in, in, in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 20, put off falsehood from each one of you. 
right? But some of us, if we, not, if we don't struggle with, with lying outwardly, we struggle with it inwardly because anytime you choose sin over God, you're essentially lying to yourself by thinking that that will satisfy you better than what God has to offer. So you're a liar. And if you're still sitting here saying that you're not a liar, then you're lying and you're a liar. And that's not me saying it. That's John, 1 John 1, 8. If we say we have no sin, then we deceive ourselves, we lie to ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So if you don't believe that you're a liar when you sin, then you're lying to yourself, and that qualifies you as a liar. So whether you admit to lying outwardly or you refuse that you don't lie, you're a liar. Right? And so we have an issue with truth. Just as people, we have an issue with truth. I want to quote something from uh, Dr. Samuel Johnson. Now, this is, a, this is in the context of, this is in the context of child, child raising, raising children. But I think you'll get the point by the time I get to the end of it, right? He says this. He says, accustom your children constantly to this. To what? Telling the truth. If a thing happened at one window and they, when relating it, say that it happened at another, do not let it pass, but instantly check them. You do not know where deviation from the truth will end. Listen to this. It is more from carelessness about truth than from intentional lying that there is so much falsehood in the world. I'm going to read it again in case you weren't paying attention at that moment. It is more from carelessness about truth than from intentional lying that there is so much falsehood in the world. See, that's why, it's so, this, this, that's why it's so important important for us to be about truth. Because what he said, he says, you never know where the deviation of truth will end, right? And, and, but that's the specialty of Satan. That's his specialty. He mixes just enough truth with just enough falsehood to make it seem plausible, right? That's what he did in the garden, right? That's why we have to be careful because that's, that's exactly what heresy is. Heresy isn't this idea where it's just this blatant lie, where it's just, it's just a, 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 like, hey, come on, like everybody can see a blatant lie, this big extravagant lie. Her- you know what, you want to know what heresy is? Heresy is truth out of proportion. That's what heresy is. And that's why it's so dangerous, because there's just enough truth in there to make it seem all right. That's the, that's the point that Paul is saying. That's why he started with this belt of truth. How can we even gird ourselves for battle if we're not, if we don't, if we're not like held in place by the truth? We don't even, like in this, like if you walk outside today, we don't even know what truth is. There's no such thing as truth anymore. It's all about what you believe. That's why it's important for us not to just know what truth is, but to allow truth to invade every single area of our lives. And having fastened the belt of truth, uh, put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, this breastplate was a piece of metal uh, that covered the front of the body. And its, fu- its function was to, uh, was to ward off like the deadly thrust from the short sword that, which the, 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 uh, that a lot of the armies used to use. We'll get into what that short sword is as we get into the sword of the spirit. Um, but what it did was it, it protected against the thrust of that short sword, right? And it protected the vital organs, especially the heart and the lungs, 
right? That was the function of the breastplate. Now, as we, as we relate this breastplate to righteousness, Paul is saying that God's own righteousness is freely given to those who believe in Jesus Christ, right? Righteousness not being something that we can generate on our own, right? So basically what, what he's saying is when the enemy penetrates every single one of our defenses, the only thing that's left is the righteousness of Christ, when he penetrates everything else that we have to offer, after we, after we, put, on, like we put on our belt to, to hold us in plate, we put on the shoes, we got our shield up, we got all of these things, we got maneuvers and dodging skills and all of that stuff. But at the end of the day, if he gets through all of that, the only thing that's saving you is not yourself. That's why Paul says in Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Right? <sighs> Hold on. Sorry, I just skipped some. So as we talk about this, this righteousness from God, this, this last line of defense that... Um, that, that that only can stop the enemy, that we, like, it, the, the only thing left uh, to save us being that, that breastplate, um, it's something, like, as we, as we put on the righteousness of God, um, it can't just stay at the breastplate. Like, this is one of those pieces of armor that just, it just can't stay here. Like, if you're only wearing the righteousness of God for yourself, and it's not being, and it's not made evident to others who believe or don't believe, then I have to question whether you really have that breastplate on. See, the imputed righteousness of God says this. It says that you can't do it by yourself, therefore I had to do it for you. And in light of my work on the cross, I've given you that which was not yours but was mine so that you can look like me when you stand before the Father. That's what the righteousness of God says, right? In light of that righteousness, there should be a proactive attempt for us to look like Christ, not just before God but before man. Like, that's, righteousness doesn't just stop at, like, being okay before God. If you have true righteousness imputed to you, that means people should be around you and, and know that you're a believer without you having to say a word. Now, I'm not saying don't say a word, but what I'm saying is if, if, the, if you hadn't said a word, would they know that you look like Jesus? Right? Have you ever had somebody just be around you and just be, and just be mad at you? for no other reason than that you're a Christian and they could tell? Like, no matter what you said, no matter, you could be talking about basketball and, and, and they just don't like you because something about you screams Jesus, right? Y'all have, none of y'all ever had that happen to you? Am I talking to the wrong crowd? Maybe. Maybe we need to check our breastplates. I'm saying that to say, with the righteousness of Christ, if we're wearing the righteousness of Christ, right, it should be like Paul says in 2 Corinthians. We are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved. To the one, we are the smell of death, and to the other, the fragrance of life. That's what it should look like to those who wear the breastplate of righteousness. Let's look at verse 15. And as shoes for your feet, Put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Now, this, 
this, this, this shoe that they were wearing as they go out to battle, is, it was called a half boot or a, or, or a caliga. What it was was it was an open-toed leather shoe um, with a heavily studded sole um, with nails in it. It had nails in the, in, in the sole of the foot, not upwardly because they, they wouldn't be able to wear them, but down into, into the ground. Um, it's very, very reminiscent of the cleat of today, like a football cleat or a baseball cleat. Where, like, and the job of that is to what? Secure, like give you traction on the ground so you don't slip and so you don't stumble. It's supposed to, it's supposed to secure your footing. And so it's securing your foundation. And for, for the Romans, because they had these nail-studded shoes, if they went up against an opponent, an opponent who didn't have similar footwear, like they would just overpower them, like regardless of what weapons they had, but because they had traction in the trenches. Because they could stand there and not slip and slide over themselves. And so the same way, like this is, this is, this is the way that peace is given to us. Uh, peace makes us immovable. Immovable, right? And, and, and Paul is talking about two types of peace here. Paul is talking about one, peace with God. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, right? So not only do we have peace with God, um, um, but we have the peace of God, right? Now, the peace with God um, says that, like, it makes us immovable in the sense that, like, like, no matter what's going on, no matter what circumstance or situation, we are okay knowing that the, that the Lord God has saved us and is saving us, right? And so when we, when we don't have that peace with God, what happens? Like, it's, 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 it's easy to find peace in other places. And so that's why, uh, that's why some of us and, and many people that we know, they seek, they seek peace where? They seek peace in, in the world, in the things of this world. And so sometimes they get it out of sex. Sometimes they just go and have sex with random multiple people all the time because they think they'll find peace. Sometimes it's in knowledge, and they just acquire so much information that they think once they know everything, they'll have peace. Sometimes it's in the luxurious lifestyle, so they'll go buy some cars, and they'll go buy a house, and they think all of these things will comfort them with peace, right? The only, is, the only problem is there's, there's no greater peace than knowing that your sins have been forgiven and, and they have been thrown as far as the east is from the west, which only the peace of God can give. And so it's not just the peace of God, uh, the peace with God, but the peace of God. Now, before we go through this, my, I'm going to be honest here. I struggle with the peace of God, and I'm going to tell you why. Because many times as believers, we live with the reality that we have peace with God, but we never are effective in displaying our peace of God. And I'm going to tell you why. Sometimes it gets depressing being around Christians who can't um, grab hold of the peace with God. Right? Now, peace, when, when Paul uses the word peace, he means completeness, soundness, welfare. It means well-being. So when Jesus in the upper room told the disciples, he says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, right? So if we're, if we're invaded by circumstance and by trials and situations, we need to be tapping into this peace of God. And it's not a peace that, like sometimes as believers, we, we live as though, like, God, I'll be peaceful when you change something. 
and we've made up our minds to not, to not find the peace of God until something happens that we think is good for us. I would love to see believers, when the worst of the worst happens, have the peace of God and look like it. Don't tell me you have the peace of God with your, with your, he- your head hung low and you're crying. All th- Listen, like, it's okay to grieve and it's okay to be upset about things, but sometimes we need to have the peace of God. Like the worst, the worst possible situation for the believer was satisfied at the cross. There should be nothing else that causes us that much disturbance and distraction when you have the peace of God. Somebody needs to experience that today. Somebody in this room right now does not have the peace of God. It's like, I don't know if y'all have ever heard that, that expression The cobbler's children have no shoes. That's a little older, so it might go over your head. A cobbler is uh, a shoemaker, right? And there was an old expression that the cobbler's children have no shoes, right? In the same way, like, how do God's people live life without the peace of God? Like, if if you're a cobbler's child, wouldn't it be, like, you would assume that they would have enough pairs of shoes, right? So why do we as believers, why can't we have the peace of God? Like, based on position and based on relationship, like, you should have the peace of God. Some of the reasons we don't have the peace of God is too, it's because we're too content wallowing in self-pity. We're too prideful and arrogant to ask for help. And we lose ground a lot in battle because we complain about where the Lord has us now. And have made up our minds to only have peace when he changes things to what we think is for our good. Right? Shoes given by the gospel of peace. Peace with God and peace of God. Let's look at verse 16. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts uh, of the evil one. Now the shield... Uh, was made with two layers of laminated wood. And the shield was, it wasn't one of those little tiny shields that you just hold up on your arm. This shield was, basically a full-grown man could hide behind the shield. That's how big the shield was, right? And so the shield was so thick and so, and so big that it would, he, he could slide his body behind it to protect all the arrows and javelins that were being thrown at him, right? And so uh, when Paul here talks about the, the flaming darts of the evil one, because the wood was laminate, the lam- when, when they were making these shields, some of the laminate would get onto their clothes, right? And so a lot of times, the enemy would use flaming darts to try to ignite the little bit of uh, laminate that it could, right? How does this translate to believers? Well, we as believers have passions um, that are waiting to be ignited inside of us. And all it takes is a little spark, a little flame, of the enemy to send us up in a blaze with our passions and with our desires. And so, um, and so some of those trials, some of those trials look like illnesses or tragedies or persecution. Uh, and so the enemy launches those arrows uh, and, and will try to inject doubt about God's goodness and about his character and about the truth of the gospel and even about his existence sometimes, right? Um, but but all of those arrows aren't necessarily, I don't like to call, some of those arrows I call delectable arrows, right? And I call them delectable arrows because they're enticing. They're things that we actually want. See, the arrows aren't always things that we're not, 
like that we're not tempted by. The arrows aren't always things that we want to avoid. The arrows many times are things that we want to engage in, right? And all it takes is a little spark. So like if, if you're struggling with, with pornography, all it takes is a little flame to send you ablaze. If you're struggling with envy or jealousy, all it takes is a little spark to send you ablaze. And so that shield of faith for us is us hiding behind the reality that, that what God has said in his word is true. And us, and us being able to hide behind that, right? It's the word of God infusing our thoughts and infusing our minds to the point where we can have trust in him. We can have trust in him. All right, got to move. Verse 17. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit. Now, this helmet of salvation, if you think of a helmet, uh, uh, for the Roman soldier, the, the helmet was made of leather and metal, and it came down across the cheeks, and there was a flap down the back to protect the neck. And so the only things that were exposed on the, shoulder, on the soldier were his mouth, his nose, and his eyes. Um, and you've got to understand, in battle, things were coming from everywhere, from the sky, from arrows. At, like, the only things that basically could penetrate this helmet was either a hammer or an axe. I don't know who wants to go out like that, but a hammer or an axe to the head was the only thing that could, pe could penetrate it. But for a warrior who didn't have a helmet, they couldn't go into a battle with confidence because they're always afraid of something coming and landing on their head. And so when, when they put their helmet on, for them, that was, a that was almost like their security blanket um, to be able to confidently go out into battle without worrying about arrows coming and getting them in the skull, right? And so... Um, for us, that helmet of salvation is a, it's a confidence builder. It assures us of the salvation of God, right? It assures us not just of our salvation when we're justified, but also of our salvation as we're being sanctified, as we're being made to look like him, right? That's why Paul says in Ephesians 1.6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it until the day of completion. So as we put on this helmet of salvation, that for us, it, it gives us confidence to engage in this battle with this foe that we know we can't defeat unless the Lord is with us. And so as we, like if, we, if we can live in the reality that, that God has saved us and is saving us, then we're okay to confidently engage in this battle knowing that we already have victory, Right? I like to think of it, I like to think of this confidence in terms of, like, when I think about Mike Tyson's old days. I'm not talking about Mike Tyson now with the big old tattoo on his face and, and all of that. I'm talking about when Mike Tyson was, like, 18, like, straight off the streets of New York. Like, how many of y'all remember that fight with him and Mike Spinks? All the dudes. I don't see no women raising their hand, but all the dudes. Dorothy, amen. But if y'all never saw this fight, this fight, it lasted 91 seconds, right? Not even the first round, 91 seconds. And if you ever see, if you ever see, I, I want y'all, go look at, it's just funny. It's not funny what happened, but it is funny looking back on it. But if you, if you go look at this, if you go look at the clip from this fight, look at Mike Spink's eyes. Go look at his eyes. He was scared before he stepped in the ring. He was scared to walk, they rung the bell and he stayed in the corner. That's how scared Mike Spinks was. And Mike Tyson knew it and lit him up in 91 seconds. I'm glad I wasn't alive to pay $55 for 91 seconds of fighting. But that's what happened. That's what happened. 
And so that, like, that's the same type of confidence we have on a great, of course, a much greater level. We're supposed to have that confidence that regardless of who the opponent is, we can be like a Mike Tyson and go knock somebody out. I'm sorry that wasn't as theological as I wanted it to come out. But that's what it would have meant anyway. So that's the type of confidence uh, we're supposed to have, right, with this helmet of this helmet of salvation. Verse 17. Uh, take the uh, helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is uh, the word of God. Now, earlier on, I mentioned that short sword when we're talking about the breastplate of righteousness, that short sword, um, which was a very popular, probably the most popular weapon um, in, in, in the ancient of days. And what it was was it was a double-sided sword, and it was shorter than the regular sword. See, the regular sword was a little bit longer, and, but, but it was a lot heavier and a lot slower. Now, this short sword um, was about this big, um, and it was very light, and you could wield it very easily. And they used it for both uh, defensive and offensive measures, right? And so... Um, so that was the sword. That's, that's what the sword was used for. And Paul likens that sword to the word of God. And we see it, we see it in use in, in Matthew chapter 4 um, when Jesus is being tempted um, by, the, by, by Satan. And Satan comes and he's offering these, the, these kingdoms. And Jesus breaks out the sword um, and uses it both offensively and defensively. And what saying, like, I can repel you. And he used all his quotes from the, the book of Deuteronomy. He's saying, listen, like, I can repel you while you're trying to swing at me, but I'm also going to slice you up with it, right? And so we see Jesus himself even using the sword of the spirit as a means to both deny and um, engage the enemy, right? And so and so, um, so that's how we see the the the... the the, the word of God being used as a sword. Unfortunately for many of us today, like the, the Bible isn't um, deemed as relevant. Like we, used to, we like to use everything else but the Bible um, because we're told that it's archaic. Um, it doesn't, it's, it's not relevant to us today. It's old. And so many times we just leave it in our sheath. Like we leave it right, right in the holder because we we're, we're too busy arguing um, from man's standpoint. Like, like we're, we're too busy trying to use... Uh, uh, like a, an apologetics argument of saying, okay, well, I'm not going to use, let's, let's talk about this, and I, I won't even use the Bible. Like, that's not even possible. You can't talk about the truth of God with somebody and not use the word of God. And so how do, how do we wield this sword? How do, we, how do we wield this sword? One, by reading it. It's impossible for you to wield the word of God if you've never read it. If you don't read it continually. If you don't saturate yourself with it, how do, how do you expect to, for the spirit to bring back to remembrance that which you've never read, right? Two, meditating on the word, not just reading over it. See, it's easy for us to just say, man, I've been reading my Bible all week and we've read over like 60 chapters but can't, haven't retained anything. No, the, like when, when, um, when, when the word calls us to meditate on it, it's almost like we use the example of uh, basically a cow's stomach, like a a cow has two stomachs, and what it does is, is it eats its food, and it goes back, uh, it goes down to the stomach, and then it comes back up, and he chews on it some more, and it goes back down to the second stomach, then it comes back up, and he chews it some more, and it goes, like, that's what, I know that's nasty, but stay with me, uh, I, but that's what the, that's, that's what our meditation should look like with the word of God. We should be sitting, like, we should chew on it, 
and then we should bring it back and chew on it some more. And then we've got to bring it back and chew on it some more, right? Memorization. We wield the spirit by, we wield the word of God by, by memorizing, right? You, this, this physical book is not going to always be readily handling, right? Um, if you've ever seen the movie, The Book of Eli, The Book of Eli, uh, they were after, he, he was carrying this book, the whole movie. Oh, I'm sorry, has anybody not seen it? Ah, y'all are messing up my sermon. <laughs> ah, all right, you know what? I'm not going to say it. I'll skip that one. That's love right there, man. Woo, that is love right there. You saw it? So you know what I'm talking about. If you've seen the movie, you know what I'm talking about. Hey, did, did anybody not see the movie and not know what I'm talking about? Okay, come see me afterwards. I'll explain it to you. But if you've seen the movie, then you know exactly what I'm talking about when it talks about memorizing the word of God. Amen. Next time, if you ain't seen the movie, I'm going to say it anyway. And the last one is studying the word. Studying the word. We have to be avid studiers of the word of God, um, not just reading it, but meditating on it, and not just meditating, but memorizing it. Like our, our study is, a compre- is, is basically the comprehensive action of all of these, being able to spend time in the word so that we know it, so that it becomes a, a, a part of us, right? So that the word is, is hidden, hidden in our hearts, right? So this is how we, we, we wield the sword. That's why Paul told Timothy, he said, do your best to present to you, present yourself to God as one approved, a workman. Not, like, it's not one needing to be ashamed because you, you do what? You handle the word of God rightly. So, the sword of the spirit. Verse 18. Praying at all times in the spirit. So Paul here has, has kind of finished up his armor. He's gone through the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, shoes for your feet, uh, readiness, shoe, I mean, shoes given by the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, um, uh, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the spirit. And so he's kind of, he's kind of fully, he said, all right, now you're donned with armor. But then he goes into prayer. He goes into prayer. And as Paul goes into prayer, what he basically wants to get across, we're going to go through a number of things real quick, but what he basically wants to get across is no matter how well we fashion our armor, no matter how well we wear truth, righteousness, faith, and salvation, or how well we are grounded in peace, or how know how to wield the sword, as a believer, as a believer your wars... Your battles with the enemy are won and lost on your knees. They're won or lost on your knees. Then Paul tells us um, what should be the makeup of our prayers. As we, as we go through verse 18 and 19, he tells us what these prayers um, should look like. One, he says they should be spirit-directed, as we see in 18. Praying at all times and when? In the spirit, right? In Romans chapter uh, 8, verses 26 and 27, uh, he says, The spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searched our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. Right? 
And so, so it's supposed to be spirit directed. Like, so we're supposed to spend time even seeking this, seeking to, to like asking what it is we should pray. Like sometimes we need to seek out the Lord for what it is we're actually supposed to be praying about. Right? Two is uh, continual prayer. He says praying at all times, continual. Paul told the Thessalonians to pray continually. Right? We have to live lives in, in continual fellowship with God. And so this isn't just talking, he's not just talking about the, the verbal act of communication between guys, but it's talking, about, it's talking about having a posture where your heart is always on its knees before God. It's talking about a, a posture where you're, you're, you're always constantly um, unified with God in soul and spirit and mind. It's talking about all day long being, like, being prayerful. It's not talking about necessarily just being in this little zone, just rocking to yourself, praying to yourself as you're walking all day. Like, no, it's talking about like a, a posture where your heart is always desiring to be near God. That's what he's talking about, praying continually, right? And at three, he's talking about varied prayer. He says in verse um, 18, praying at all times in the spirit with all types of prayer or all kinds of prayer or all prayer. So, so it's not just supposed to be continual, but our prayers, our prayers should look different based on um, the circumstance we're in. It shouldn't be this repetitive jargon of just saying the same thing over and over again, right? So like depending on the situation, your prayer should look like confession. It should look like thanksgiving, it should look like intercession. It should look like adoration or meditation. It should look like humility before God. It should look like song. Like we have to be skilled in all of these types of prayers. It shouldn't, be, it shouldn't just be us going before the Lord asking for stuff. Right? Like we have, to be, we have to be skilled in the variety of prayer. Three, he talks about uh, persistent prayer. He says, with all, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer... Um, to that end, keep alert, verse, verse 18, sorry, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, right? So he's talking about persistent prayer. Um, I know we're, we're a young crowd, but has anybody spent over 10 years praying for a loved one before they came to Christ? Has anybody spent that long praying, like, Amen. Like, that's, like when, 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 when the word talks about persistent prayer, sometimes when we get to praying for people, we pray and then expect it to happen overnight, and then we stop praying. Like, and I know most of us are a little younger, but we don't know what it looks like to labor in prayer for 30 years, waiting for the Lord to act, knowing that he's going to act, right? And, 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 and so for us, even though, we're not, like, even though we're not alive long enough to have prayed for 30 years, like sometimes we stop short because like we, we don't pray for people because it takes too long. If they haven't turned around within the first week, I don't know how to help you, right? Either that or we get, we get mad at people when we pray for them because they haven't been sanctified before they've been saved, right? Like, so we start praying for people, and we expect for there to be changed before they've come into a relationship with Jesus. And then we get mad at them for not having changed because we've prayed for them, right? Sometimes we just pray for them so that our relationship with them can get better, right? Like, it's not about their relationship with God. It's about our relationship with them and us being able to get along with them, But that's why prayer doesn't, that's why for us prayer doesn't last long. That's why it's never persistent. 
Because it's more about our, our, our relationship with other people than it is about their relationship with God. If we were praying, uh, if we were praying for people in light of what the Lord has done for our relationship with him, our prayers would look different. I'm going to read this parable from Luke chapter 18, verses 2 through 5. In a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with a plea. Grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this, wed- this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. Like, what, so what is the parable? This parable is talking about us knocking down the doors of the kingdom until the Lord answers our prayers. And he, he's not talking about just, just asking him for stuff. He's talking about being persistent. This widow was so persistent that the king got annoyed with her and said, you know what? If you stop bothering me, I'll grant you your wish. That's what the, the Lord is calling us to that type of prayer. That's why he says, ask and, it's, and like seek. He said, knock. It, like, like all of those, are, they get more intense as he says it. He wants us to come and beat down the doors of the kingdom so that he can work. Like he's not working because of our prayers, but he wants to work through them so that he can show his power, he can show his goodness, and he can show his grace by answering the prayers of his people. Sometimes we just stop too short. Persistent prayer. Lastly, he talks about intercessory prayer. Making supplication for all the saints. So we look at Paul here as Paul says this. He talks about, like we, when we view Paul, I mean, we can see him as he's in, in prison right now in the Ephesian church. We can see him in chains. Um, if we were to look at his back and his sides, we would see uh, the marks from um, the many beatings he took. Uh, we would see the bruises um, from him being stoned a multiple of time. Um, if we were to look at Paul, or when we think about Paul, we think about Paul as probably one of the boldest um, apostles, one of the greatest, most fearless Christians in, in all of the Bible, right? That's what we think of when we think of Paul. But what is Paul saying here? Paul is saying, he's, he's saying, making supplication for all the saints, verse 19, and also for me. And look what he says, that my words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, What does Paul say? Paul is saying, I need your prayers. He's saying, I need you to pray for me that I would be bold. I need you to pray for me so that when I open my mouth, I know what to say. He's like, Paul isn't assuming, Paul isn't assuming that he has it all together. Like when he gets up to proclaim the excellencies of God, he knows exactly what he's going to say, or he's not scared to do it. He's saying, I need the saints to pray for me that I would be bold in proclaiming the gospel. This is Paul we're talking about. Paul, probably the beastiest of, of, of the beastiest of all Christian saints, saying, I need the prayer of other believers. So as I as I as I close, we 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 have this reality that we're we're at war with an enemy that is too great for us. Um, yet those who are in Christ have been given resources to be able to aid in not only just standing firm. But, but giving victory, giving victory, wearing the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, helmet of salvation, our feet shod with the readiness given by the gospel of peace, the sword of the spirit, and, and prayer. 
the most powerful of all, prayer. And so if, if, if you have not trusted Christ as your Savior, as your Savior, there's no hope for you. There's no hope for you. If, if you're an unbeliever right now, your, your mind has probably been blinded by Satan. Or, or every time you, you get the word of God, he takes it and scoops it out real quick so it doesn't take root and take hold. But if you're a believer, understand and know that like, you've been given victory in Jesus. But for many of us, we, we don't make use because we're ignorant of the schemes of the, de- uh, of the enemy. And we don't know how to properly guard ourselves and get ready for battle. And so I pray this will be an opportunity for us to be aware that, that there is a war going on. There, there's a constant war. There are no half times. There are no water breaks. There's a constant war going on. And so I, w- I want us to see that when it comes, when it comes, like when you're arguing with you, with, like when, you, when there's division between you and other believers, when there's division be- in your household, when there's division in the church, it's not just about the division. Know that you're at a war with the enemy who came to divide. It said he came to thieve, steal, and kill. Right? So as we, as we think on these things, like, like, like let's, let's make use of what God has given us. Let's make use and don ourselves with the armor of God so that we can be able to withstand the wiles of the devil. Father, we come before you now knowing that you give complete and utter victory for those who are in Christ. We relish in the, in the reality that you have already defeated sin, defeated death, defeated the grave, defeated Satan himself. And so we're just awaiting your return um, to make that uh, clear reality. And so, Lord, we, we pray, God, that you would strengthen us with your word. Uh, allow us to be more disciplined with, with, with being students of your word, knowing what you say about your word, knowing how to wield the sword of the spirit, knowing how to don ourselves with the armor that you've given. And, God, we pray all these things in the, in the beautiful, matchless name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who, who has already given us victory, already given us victory. And I pray we would be encouraged by that. And we pray all these things in his name. Amen.